Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tyler, you were clinically dead nine months ago. But you survived. You fought your way back. You just have to find out why. This is Gigi Hawkins, writer, director, and host of the No Film School podcast. And this week, we speak with stuntman, stunt coordinator, actor-turned-director Sam Hargrave about the second installment of the Extraction franchise. That's right, Tyler Rake is back, Chris Hemsworth is as directable and watchable as ever, and you can watch this whirlwind of a film right now, June 16th, 2023, on Netflix. The film follows Australian black ops mercenary, aka Tyler Rake, Chris Hemsworth, tasked with another deadly mission— rescuing the battered family of a ruthless Georgian gangster from a prison where they are being held. And I didn't think this was my kind of movie, but man, I love this movie, and the more I learn about it, the more I learn why. This is a film that's tapping into something so important to great filmmaking, that is finding authenticity at every stage. In my conversation with Sam, we dig into how he found authenticity in the film's stunts, characters, actors, performances, and in a 21-minute wonder. And how even though technically this is his second feature, he's been directing films for years, just not in the way you would expect. And now, my interview with Sam Hargrave. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for joining the No Film School podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. You know, when you watch a movie and then you're high on it for a couple of days, that's my experience watching Extraction 2. I am still buzzing from watching it last night, and and congratulations on, on pulling something freaking awesome off. Well, thank you. That's high praise, and I, I love it. That's exactly the kind of feeling that we're going for with something like this. You hope when you make a sequel that people respond to it as well or better than they did to the first film. So to hear that you're still buzzing, that makes me feel really good. So thanks for saying that. (laughs) Of course. Well, uh, your directorial debut for a feature was Extraction, the the first movie in this series franchise or uh, i don't know what i think you call it a franchise i don't know we'll okay. see a, a series this series probably has to have more than two i mean if if we get into a third one we'll see i mean then we can start calling it a series but we'll call it a franchise for now 
My gut says we're moving into franchise territory because like these iconic characters, I'm just, I'm here for it. I need to continue the buzz. But you, so, so technically this was your direct, or Extraction 1 was your directorial debut, but you've had this storied career working in Hollywood as a stunt coordinator, a stuntman, an actor. And here we are on discussing Extraction 2. So clearly something was, something worked with your career transition. Can you speak to what it was like to transition into features. I know you have done some shorts in the past. Uh, yeah, talk about that 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 turning point in your career. Yeah, it's a heck of a story. We'll try to narrow it down to the pertinent information. I started my stunt career in Hollywood in 2005. And before that, I was in North Carolina, grew up, you know, doing making short films, doing martial arts, doing kind of, you know, crazy fun stuff. And when I got to LA in 2005, stunts was my focus. However, I had gone to film school back in North Carolina. Mm. So I did have an eye towards directing and telling stories. It was just that I was, you know, young and flexible and really wanted to be Jackie Chan, at least on the stunt side of things. And so I decided to give stunts a try and it worked out. And I started getting jobs, doubling actors, getting nondescript jobs as they're termed when you're not doubling someone. And then all the while making short films within this smaller community of stunt performers, actors, and filmmakers that I still kind of run with to this day. And we were all wanted to tell stories. We all wanted to do more than just fall on our heads for a living. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we had a fun little group and, you know, we continued to do that alongside of our stunt acting careers or you know, what have you. So doing stunts and then coordinating stunts and choreographing fights, got those opportunities, which was great. You know, people saw that I had a vision for how action could be choreographed mm -hmm. and shot. And a lot of my experience, and I think a lot of my preparation for my directing debut came from the 10,000 hours of time that I spent shooting and editing and designing action for what we call stunt viz or fight viz mm -hmm. which in the big you know feature world is when the stunt team takes the action from the script or talks with the director and you lay out how you see the action potentially going for this movie say it's a marvel movie and you read on the page that captain america and iron man fight for example we would then take that concept get our stunt team together design action around the story beats in the script, shoot that with our video cameras, cut it together on our you know laptops, editing software, put sound effects, music, sometimes visual effects to it, very quick, down and dirty, but then present mm -hmm. that to the directors. And so over the course of my career, I've done dozens and dozens of those for lots of big movies. And so I received feedback from some of the best directors in the business, people like Francis Lawrence, the Russo brothers, Gavin O'Connor, Chad Stahelski, wow. Dave Leach, like some of the best people out there were giving me feedback on my little mini movies. That's how I saw them, yeah. at least. But it was part of the larger production process. It's just for me, that was my time to shine, if you will, and tell my stories and put the camera where I thought it was interesting. And so I got a lot of positive feedback. I would take notes if they're like, more close-ups here or try a wide shot here establishing or whatever the notes came back as. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like invaluable experience so that when I then 
transitioned into second unit directing. And then after that, directing extraction, I had already been directing short movies and stunt viz and fight viz for decades. So it didn't feel like something brand new. It just felt like a larger version of something I'd been doing for years. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a, a gap that I, that you just filled of the production process, which is this stunt viz choreographing and, and figuring out where to put the camera to work within what you're envisioning the fight to be, for example, or the choreography to be. Yeah. It's very different than the Hong Kong style that I grew up watching and loving because they kind of are in a way improvisational. They know they're going to shoot a fight, mm-hmm. but they don't know exactly what it is. So they go in there, they find the space, they start choreographing it. Everyone's sitting around waiting and then they shoot and they move through it. In Hollywood, time is money and stunts and stunt performers are not inexpensive. So you have to prep and plan all of these things far ahead of time. And so that's part of the the way you can go on to set with a blueprint of how the action is going to go. And you can test and try, you can Mm -hmm. give to the directors and let them see how it might look. And they can say, you know what? I don't like that twisty thing you did with the wire. Can it be more of a, you know, a flippy thing or whatever, whatever it is they want to see. You can try all that before you get to set so that when you get there, now you have a plan and everyone knows generally what you're trying to do. So you can execute it in a much more timely, safe manner. Mm-hmm. And, and this concept of when you have, even if it's on your iPhone shooting your movie before you shoot your movie, saves so much time and energy and pain down the line. Now, when so you much. started to expand outside of, or I guess specifically, this is more of an extraction, the original question, yeah. but were you shooting were you shooting and storyboarding or video storyboarding every moment before? Is that the type of director that you you found that you are? Not every moment was storyboarded or video, you know, edited together and shot beforehand. Most of them. Like mm-hmm. if we couldn't, all the action beats were fight viz or stunt viz ahead of time. I didn't shoot mm-hmm. most of them because I was busy with other directorial duties, which that was something that I didn't really expect. So when I got <laughs> the you know, the opportunity when I think we were on Infinity War and Joe Russo, I told him earlier that I wanted to direct movies and then kind of thought nothing of it. But then he came back and said, hey, do you really want to direct movies? I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, well, I have a story that might be a great first one for you. And it was Extraction. It changed. I think the title was DACA at the time and it took place in somewhere else. And we molded and changed it based on a lot of different ideas that I came up with or that Chris had. And so it became something different, but it was that general story. And so once, once that was solidified and once Chris said, yes, Netflix said yes. And we were, we were doing it when we got on set or even before that, the prep process, there's so many questions that mm-hmm. come the way of the director. It feels like you're a switchboard operator, you know, on, methamphetamines because you're just moving so fast trying to focus but then you have all these little you know every department needs Mm -hmm. your attention at some point and so you have to make sure that each one gets the attention they need and deserve so they can do their job but it really is fully you know wholly focusing on one thing and then disconnecting at a moment's notice and then reconnecting to a different department and having you know hopefully the answer for them it was wild so while doing that, while I was a switchboard operator, the stunt team, they were designing 
mm-hmm. the action stuff. And so they, at times I would plug into the stunt, you know, version of the switchboard, check in and say, Hey, how's it going? They would show me. And, you know, I was kind of like paying it forward because we had someone else then was doing those stunt viz and fight viz that I used to do. And so I would look at them, give them notes, and then we would go to set with a blueprint and try to execute like the stunt viz showed. And so what wasn't action, we did try to storyboard the, the DP and I sat down and we would spend hours just kind of imagining how this shot could go and what would be a fun way to tell this story. And we would just sketch it out as a shot list first because it was mm-hmm. just the two of us and I'm not an artist. And he, I mean, we are artists, but not storyboard artists. <laughs> and so rather than sketch up bad photos or sorry, bad drawings, we would write it down as a shot list. And then I would just sit with a storyboard artist afterwards and kind of talk them through it and yeah. give them an idea and they would have a representation. So in some way and some form going into a scene, I wanted to be prepared as much as possible because communication with other departments is one of the most important things in filmmaking. And so if if you're just off the cuff making stuff up in your head, they don't have time to react or plan enough in advance to give you what you need. So trying to be prepared with a stunt viz, storyboards. We didn't do previs on the first extraction film, meaning, you know, none of the computer animated animatics. version. Yeah, animatics. Yeah. But it was we did storyboard, shot list, and and fight viz. What was one of the areas that you plugged into, I love this oper- operator visual of a director yeah. coming and plugging in, and also the idea of not having done the 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 prep work beforehand. It just like I'm just like yep. this is a short circuit fire waiting to happen if you don't do that work in prep. Yep. As much as like I think sometimes it gets glorified, and I think that is somewhat of a myth in Hollywood. Like, of course, there's some magic on there's magic on set and finding things in the moment. But yep. having done that homework and done that prep, like it allows for that flexibility. Exactly. W- w- what was one of the departments that you didn't know much about that was definitely, especially in the the ramping up, that you were like didn't realize you were really into, for example, hair and makeup or something else like that. I, interestingly enough, and I think this, another reason why the transition to directing went how it did for me was I had, have interacted with pretty much every other department on a film set for many, many years as a stunt coordinator and second unit director. So I, I have a pretty good understanding of what everybody does and needs Mm -hmm. to do. I think truthfully, part of the you know, the thing that got a little overwhelming at times, there were two departments that I, I mean, and interestingly, ones that I worked very closely with and from the stunt side of things, but it was the armorers dealing mm-hmm. with all the different kinds of guns and keeping track with, you know, how many shots were fired, how many magazines had been spent, like, you know, what what gun configuration was were we using in this scene? And then it changes and all of that stuff was, we start to get spin my head a little bit and same with the special effects department, which again, I've worked very closely with those two departments, you know, through the years. And, but sometimes keeping up with all that on the first extraction was wild. On the second extraction, you know, we had great teams, great teams on the first extraction, but on the second one, I think we had even better teams with just more experience. And I knew a little more about what to mm-hmm. ask. And, and so it went much more smoothly the second time around in many departments, other right. departments, less so, because you're always each movie, no matter how much you think you're prepared or how much you think you know, each one is its own unique puzzle. It's a labyrinth that you and the crew have to work your way through. And 
you know, the second extraction was more challenging because we didn't have a script as far along as we did going into the first film. Mm. So the first film, that script had been around for almost a decade, just going to different studios, little changes here and there. But the story was solid, been around for a long time. Extraction 2 was kind of being written as we were shooting it. We had a script, but but Chris and I wanted to imbue a little more character here, character Mm. there. The action set pieces didn't change a lot. But a lot of the interactions with characters did. We would shoot a scene, wasn't quite working. So we'd kind of rewrite it, go back and reshoot it and have to figure out the schedule changes. And so that was that was a new challenge because I the first one script was ready to go. So this one yeah. shooting while kind of writing and adjusting and adapting was a different experience and very Die challenging. Hard style, you know, that's yeah. how they did it. Yeah. Great, a great action <laughs> history of pulling that off. I, I love that you were able to sort of like follow your gut with further pushing the character development because in this, in Extraction 2, I found myself like connecting with the characters and becoming so invested with characters that I had known before. So obviously there's that built-in relationship, but also these new characters. So for example, we were talking about uh, Tina, who plays the wife of this Georgian sort of mafioso, if you would call it. Is that the right word? I think that term fits. I don't know if they use that in Georgia, but it, for our purposes, scary totally works. Two, yes. Those two brothers, very scary, very well cast. And, and, and this character is a very difficult character, I, I would say, to... Uh, pull off. And I was immediately invested in her. I think the actor has this like Shelley Duvall vibe to her. Yeah, that's actually great. Yeah. Ring any bells. Totally. Um, and, and, and so I just thought you that the film did such a good job connecting me and making me care about everyone on screen, even when they're a bad guy, which is such yeah. an art. So talk to me about how you work with actors, especially, again, coming from extensive experience being in front of the camera and around the camera. What is your approach? Well, that's that's a lot we just covered there. I'll try to dive into it piece by piece. So the story-wise, it was very important to all of the filmmakers, to me and Chris and Joe, that we really advanced the connection with the characters, the emotional stakes and information, because the first film we had just enough, you know, it was a very, it was just enough. It was action heavy and just enough character to, to really invest and get, you know, care about these people. So the second one was like, we, the audience deserves more, not only more action, you know, and more excitement, but more intimate moments, more development of who these people are and why we should care. And we had an, an expanded cast of people, new characters. So it was a very challenging thing to do. Actually pretty excited with how it all came together. And it starts with the page, right? Is no one can prepare their work, their character without having at least an idea of where they're coming from and where they're going. So that was why the script was so important to us and we worked so hard on it. And then once you get the actors involved, I think, well, casting is a huge, huge part. You've got Chris Hemsworth, the guy is legendary, legendarily good looking, yes. <laughs> incredibly talented, both as an yeah. actor and physically. He's just a spoil he spoils me as a director like there's no actors out there that i you know know have worked with that are better than he is he's right up there at the top so i'm spoiled but then to so you need to cast to support that talent and with golshifta you're playing the character of nick and adam bessa like they as his brother sister duo 
We Nick got a little and, bit of them Nick in the Yaz. first movie. Nick and Yaz. Yeah, Nick and Yaz kicking. Can I say Yaz? I don't know. Yeah, okay. oh, we swear. We swear. <laughs> okay, good. Anyways, Nick and Yaz, those characters were kind of fun in the first movie. Got a glimpse of them. So we mm-hmm. wanted to make sure and develop them a little further, right? Bring yeah. people in. Know why it is that Tyler Rake is associated with these people. How it is that he, being Tyler Rake, will take orders from Nick Khan, like why does why is it that he respects her so much as a friend and a mm-hmm. fellow operator? We felt it very important to give her moments on screen to shine both physically mm-hmm. in her action sequences and emotionally, where we can see the deep care that they have for each other as a yeah. team. And then with with Tina, so the character of Ketavan, you know, and her family, which you know, the characters of Ketavan, Sandro, and Nina, the young girl, that was a very interesting dynamic because you have a family in a prison, which is just kind of a shocking visual and something at first you're like, whoa, this is crazy. But once the story develops, you see why and you kind of immediately empathize with a mother trying to raise two kids in a prison and how difficult that must be. And it was very challenging to try to portray the character of David, who is plays her husband. He's on screen. Right. The mafioso brother. So you got David and, and Zurab and they're two brothers. Zurab gets a lot more screen on time. Sorry, on screen time. So he's a little easier to develop. Whereas David was on screen such a short time. You had to understand him, but dislike him immediately. And he, his job was to help us as audience members identify with and empathize with the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so through, you know, through that, like his part, his role was, you know, somewhat smaller on screen, but super pivotal to Critical. the, yeah, to the way this story goes. And I thought casting locally, we found some amazing talent out of Georgia, mm-hmm. you know, just really raw and just, they, they really had a tight knit community there. Each one of those actors actually all knew each other. Really? The, the kid playing Sandro, whose name is Andro, it gets a little confusing, but Andro was like the godson of Torniki Gogriciani, who plays Zurab. So like it's a very family or familial style to that group of actors. They all knew each other. I love that. And so casting them and but it wasn't one of those things where we knew that and just said, oh, we'll just cast the family. It was individual tapes that came in and we just Mm. picked them based on their talent. And they were, you know, happened to be the most skilled of the group that sent in their tapes and they all knew each other. So. And part of the the casting process for these extraction films is trying to cast locally and be as truthful as possible rather than hiring Hollywood actors to do an accent. It's like, let's find the people who are from that region and bring an authenticity and a truthfulness. You feel that as an audience. And it's subtle, right? Like it's subtle, but they can speak the language. So you have this, again, authenticity, which we're all about with this franchise. And they have just the look and feel of people from that region because they are mm-hmm. from that region. Mm-hmm. They grew up there. They know the culture. They know the interaction, the subtleties of movement and, and speech. And it it really does transport you into that space. And that's one of the things that we're trying to achieve with a movie like this is an immersive experience. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of it is the casting. The, the You speak to the authenticity in the casting, and that feels like 
the a through line in the movie in terms of the execution of stunts. I, I think you will probably be talking on end about the this extended sequence. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so we can we can d- dig into some specific details about it. But I, I, I'd love to hear how you as as a director prioritize practical effects and practical stunts and you know even in conversations with studios for example like how do you get people on board with that because it it shows in again it shows on the screen and like you know we're I don't know if you see there's like an alien behind me we're big practical yeah. people here at No Film School and we want Same. to celebrate that so yeah let, what are, what is Sam's thoughts on on practical and stunts when you can do something practically, always do it. That's my motto. I think a lot of convincing studio, convincing the actors and your crew, a lot of that credibility came from my career as a stunt performer. So mm-hmm. it, it does. it's not as if I'm asking a lot of these performers to do stuff that I haven't either done myself or yeah. coordinated successfully. And so... I think that helps, you know, when I'm out there and a lot of times I'm operating camera on some of these more dangerous things. So when Chris Hemsworth is out on the top of a moving train with a helicopter, you know, 10 feet away, I'm right there with him. Like I could reach out and touch him. I'm not, I'm not saying, Hey, you go out there and do the dangerous thing. I'll be in the warm tent, right? I want to be there with my actors. And I think that lends a little bit of credibility. So with the studio, (laughs) I think it'd be once the first movie came out and they saw the approach and the methodology, and then the response to mm-hmm. the finished product. They were on board with practically doing as much as possible so long as it was safe. And that just becomes a rehearsal process and hiring the right people. Mm-hmm. It's all about the team that you surround yourself with, right? I, I'm not doing this by myself. Right. It's impossible. So you have to just get the best people. So you hire the best stunt teams the best, you know, AD departments and just all the different departments have to be top notch because they're all working so closely together. And then once you demonstrate that in your extensive rehearsal and preparation and safety procedures, and, you know, it's like a book that has to be written on what you're doing, why you're doing it, what are the safety precautions in place. And once that's presented and they see the rehearsal footage and the stunt biz and they, it starts to ease the anxiety a little bit. Although, the we did have to fight right down to the wire to land a helicopter on a moving train and because you know, we could sure we could have done that on a blue screen we could have you know, and some people might argue it you know it looks like it. it looks it's so real looking that it's fake how did you do that but we again it's in the dna of this project of this yeah. franchise to do it if we can do it practically let's do it and that idea came from Fred North, the pilot of the chopper, because he he was going to do our helicopter work anyway. And it was scripted as a a fast rope, which is the helicopters over top of the train and the stunt performers slide down a rope onto the train. He was the one who said, you know, Sam, and I'm not going to pretend to do a French accent. I (laughs) couldn't do it as well as him. But he said, you know, Sam, I've never seen anyone land a helicopter on a moving train. The fast rope, I've done that many times. He goes, but that let's do something unique. Let's do something different. And I looked at him, eyes as wide as saucers, and said, you can do that? He's like, well, I'm not really sure, but I want to try. And that energy, that enthusiasm for doing the practical gag, Mm -hmm. for pushing the envelope safely, he's one of the safest guys you'll ever work with, pushes it. He pushes it further than anyone, but it's it's all the safety measures. And he rehearsed, I think, three weeks 
with that, you know, with the chopper, doing it with a static truck, doing yeah. it with a moving truck, then doing it with a static train, a moving train. And so it's not like he's just winging it. I read uh, he know. did it a hundred times before you guys shot, which like I think speaks to to listeners out there. These are professionals working, as Sam was saying, 100%. under the utmost controlled environments. And yeah. this is the number one like helicopter film pilot in the world. Number and one, yeah. It's it seems like you're you're really good at orchestrating, bringing these people together with this ambitious lens, and then having them also rise to the occasion and bring these ideas to the table that you can pull off. Which is yeah, oh, when you so. have the right people in the room, like you know, I, I've heard said before, and it's true. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, hmm. and that is a great example. I would not have thought of landing the helicopter on the train. I would have said like, oh, it's it's dangerous and cool. We could make it really nice, but the guys dropping the fast rope but having someone who has things that they want to do has an idea for pushing his job to the to the utmost to the to the furthest level of his abilities Mm -hmm. improves the movie as a whole and so when you surround yourself with all these talented people then that's how you get these elevated movies with things you haven't seen before it's all about the people that you bring in and the trust you put in them to give you the great ideas and to let them do what they do because yeah. that's that's why they're there. Now, I have a very technical question about how you pulled off this ambitious sequence that goes on mm-hmm. for over 20 minutes, which is like lo- longer than my attention span usually. But here I am <laughs> sitting on my couch, like jawed on the floor. When So I, I'm sure there was conversations that this was going to be happening very, very early on. Like we mm-hmm. want to do something that is pushing the envelope, that is a care pushing what we've already set up in the original film. What did that actually look like on the script? And of course, it's it's a different situation than, say, a, a film, a script that hasn't been sold in because you know you're making this movie. Yeah. But of course, you're balancing also character and story. So, so, for example, is the blocking spelled out? Is it like he goes for the gun, then opens the top hatch with his other hand? Is that all scripted? Or are you more coming up with that in the visualization process? That's in the rehearsal and visualization process that what's scripted and interestingly, the first I heard of Extraction 2, the bare bones, there was no story, mm-hmm. but Joe came to me and said, hey, I think we should open the next movie with a, an escape from a prison all as a winner. And I was like, whoa, okay, all right, I love it, ambitious. And it ended up not being the opening, it was a little bit later, but that was the first I heard of it. So it was mm. it, it was there from the start. And so- it was in the script, and I think the action description was 25 or 30 pages in one version of a 95-page script, which is wild. And, you know, the what was on the page was very different than what ended up on screen. And how I like to work with action and writers and other directors when I was doing stunts was look at the, you know, the scene on the page, break it down into its most important and necessary components. What mm-hmm. of this scripted description needs to remain in order for the story to to shine through the action. What what story points have to come through? What character moments have to remain in order for this not to fall apart? And then specific action, I kind of, you know, with the blessing of the the writer, just say, hey, we kind of want to take that and try to make it even better. 
because not saying that that's kind of what I've done for so many years and what other stunt performers and designers do. And Joe's got a great mind for action. He's been doing action for a long time. He's you know, a good writer. And yet these people, that is what they do. Designing crazy action. That's what they live for. That's what gets them out of right. bed in the morning. That's right. what they ruminate on for hours at a time. So when you put those minds within the parameters of the story and character beats you need, that's when the magic happens. So a lot of the character beats are on the the page. Mm -hmm. And then no, what happens when we, the specifics of the fights and stuff that was, I mean, some of the thing, I think the actual action description in the courtyard fight, for example, on the page was just in, in a scene to rival old boy, Rake Mm -hmm. dispatches his attackers. So Joe knew that was enough to inspire us and we would just go do our thing. And so it's, yeah, it's not all spelled out in the script, important character and story beats are, and then the process begins, which we talked about earlier of letting the stunt team go. I talk with them and say, Hey, this is the vibe I'm going for. This is approximately the time that we want to spend. Make sure that, you know, we touch it, touch base with the characters, check in because we don't want action overload. And then sometimes it really depends on, it's a for me, it's a feeling mm-hmm. less than a specific move because kicks are kicks and punches, punches, how you put them together and how you photograph them is the most important thing. But ultimately, it's the feeling that you give to the audience mm-hmm. because that's why we I think why we enjoy movies is because we're transported from our normal everyday experiences and feelings. And in, and in this world, we get to experience and feel something unique and hopefully exciting. So if we can convey that feeling, then we're succeeding. So in this moment, when we were designing that courtyard fight sequence, rather than saying, hey, I want it to be like old boy or I want it to be like, you know, referencing other movies, I pulled up a nature documentary of a lion surrounded by a bunch of hyenas. Uh-huh. And I said, all right, guys, this is the feeling that I want to get when watching this sequence, that you have this lion in the center and you see the, you know, and I won't say fear, but it's like the the desperation in the eyes of like survival mode when surrounded by multiple attackers. And then you can feel like the slinky, you know, attack mode of the, the people around him, like mm-hmm. the hyenas, never really attacking from the front. And so with that in mind, you know, all the, the, the stunt team watched it and they're like, okay, I get it. That's the feeling. Yeah. yeah. Now we have to go out and figure out how do we convey that with people, not you know, lions and hyenas. You're the second director in the last two months to reference pulling up, I don't know if this is YouTube, but pulling up animal videos to direct. The other being Ruben Osland pulling up the video of Denver, the guilty dog, that YouTube video to, for triangle of sadness and using that. And I, it's all, it's so refreshing to also hear the, the, the freedom of use whatever it takes to convey what you need to direct to direct period and and whether it's like a song or as you know we heard rob savage last week talking about the song that they put together for the boogeyman or this scene is this feeling and that connecting with it viscerally and sometimes we just simply can't tell what it's going to be we have to get on the same page a different way yeah it's it's all about communication and everyone communicates differently and that's part of the challenge of directing is how do you communicate to this specific person, actor, department, whatever it is, in a way that will speak to them clearly 
and convey the feeling you want to get across. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes words don't work. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words and you can just show show someone something and they go, oh, I get it. Rather than say, well, I want him to be desperate and because everyone's version of desperate means something else. But yeah. when you see it, you're like, all right, we're all on the same page here. And so I, it was it, that moment was captured, I think, really well in that nature documentary. And I think we transitioned or transferred that energy onto the screen. And Chris Hemsworth is so lion in that scene. Now that you're right? saying it, I was like, I'm envisioning that. And it's very, I mean, it. It's so impressive, and I can't wait for our listeners to to see the film. And I hope that they also see it and maybe time it with Old Boy, which they're doing a recirculation in theaters now. So that'd oh, be oh wow, a, that's amazing. Yeah, perfect. If you want to see some inspiration now, moving as we're sort of wrapping up here in this conversation, I'm curious to hear about advice that you have for emerging filmmakers. So folks who are maybe setting off to make their first short or Maybe they're finally making the leap into a micro-budget feature, especially because you bring this studio perspective and Hollywood career to the table. What advice do you have for those folks? First, congratulations, you're doing it. But I think the, you know, it's, there's so many ways to get to the finish line, so many versions of your vision that can be put up there. And that's one of the challenges but also rewarding things about film as an artistic medium is it's collaborative by nature. And so I think advice would be one to to, first to do it. Meaning if you have a story that's burning a hole in your soul that you just really want to tell, do it. Even if you have to take your iPhone and go out there and, you know, grab some friends and do it, you only get better at a craft by doing it. Mm -hmm. It's you can't expect to become you know, Spielberg, Jaws was his third movie, right? Like, so you have to, you have to keep doing this over and over again. And kind of, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell in The Outlier saying that, you know, 10,000 hours Mm -hmm. is kind of the minimum of time spent at something to get to expert level. So you, you know, when you think about it that way, it's like, how have you spent 10,000 hours making movies? Yeah, You know, that, and it was kind of daunting in a way, not saying that that should, should, you know, slow you or deter you and saying like, oh my gosh, like I just did an hour, (laughs) but know that it takes time and you're going to do things and shoot scenes that aren't good. I have stuff on YouTube that you can see like early short films that are still there that aren't great, but it, but I leave them there because I'm not embarrassed by it. Like Mm -hmm. that's where I was at that time in my career. And I learned by doing that. I made mistakes. Like I did things not great and you learn to do things better. So do what it is that you have a desire to do. Don't don't wait to get it done. Don't wait to like, oh, I don't have a good enough idea. My script isn't finished. Do it. Do, do a bad short. That's okay. It's better to do it and make mistakes than not do it and wish you had. That's one. The other would be if you had, as a director, like if you're wanting to be a film, and I come from that perspective and I can't really speak to the others, but one of the most important things that you can work on skill wise is communication. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, that is your job. You are communicating with so many different people and each one of those people is a unique individual who hopefully is there because they want to be, and they want to contribute something artistically. How do you inspire them to give you the best of their skill set? Mm-hmm. Make them feel invested in your project 
Because ultimately it's your movie if you're directing it, but how do you make them feel ownership of that so that yeah. they want to do more rather than just like, you know, you have, I need you here because you have to be and, and treat them, you know, less than, I think you just right. got to be like, Hey, you, without you, we can't do this. And trying to communicate both what you need done, yeah. but also communicate your appreciation for what they're doing. I think is super important because if you have, if you kind of trust your people and try to inspire them rather than, you know, control them or right. micromanage, they'll, you'll get a lot more out of them because yeah. I, I've worked with both types of, you know, directors and you definitely will go further for someone who trusts you to do the job they hired you for yeah. than someone who hires you and then tells you how to do every little part of your job. So I would say, learn to communicate learn to trust and inspire your people and then do what it is that you love to do over and over again until you get good at it. I have a communication question that I'm like a little bit embarrassed to ask, but no, ask I it. there's no bad question. You have, you have such this exciting energy and I can see how you inspire people. Like I'm sure being around you, people are like so pumped by it and the way that yeah. you communicate. But a lot of stuff that is done as a director is done over email. How do you mm -hmm. how do you communicate over email in a way that makes people feel excited? It's a weird well, question, but I've it it is, and you do have to respond to a lot of emails. I try as much as possible to establish a relationship with department heads face to face mm -hmm. because it will never you'll never email is a poor substitute for communication. But once they hopefully once you've established once you meet them and establish your energy and your enthusiasm and what you're wanting to do. Hopefully, then when they read that email, they'll be able to transfer that energy into the written word. Yeah. Because if you're just going off an email, it's really hard. It's like getting a text from someone that you With don't even know. a period at the end. Yeah, a period. And it's like, hmm, I, there's a lot of ways I can interpret that. Yeah. Hopefully, if you've met that person and then you, you know, you've talked to them in, in person, physically, face-to-face, mm -hmm. when you get that text, you can better interpret what it means. But I try to do important communicating face-to-face. -face. Yeah, yeah. I think and that's it, such a practical advice and such good advice because it's so easy for, in, in the, when there's a million things going on and you're in the switchboard operator mode, like, the last thing we need is for somebody to feel hurt or miffed or like they did something wrong. And so that in-person communication is a way to connect as humans. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, so crucial to the, I mean, just our time here on earth is interacting with other people, feeling and feeding off of that energy and, and trying to just connect with people. Because you, if you, if you're, you're removed from, and it can be hard because it's, you're commanding almost like commanding an army. Like there are yeah. sometimes hundreds of people working for you and it's hard to give everyone the time that they need and deserve. But when you do that little, it's about, you know, your present to them is your presence. If that's yeah. like a so, super cheesy thing, but when you're with them, even if it's for like one minute, try your best. That's why I use the switchboard operator, right? Because you unplug from the other thing, plug in directly to that person, give them your full attention. And then, you know, once you're done with that and you've completed that idea, then you shift your focus back, plug in directly to that. Because once you start plugging and get pulled in too many directions, your energy just gets sucked dry and you'll, you know, you can't sustain that. Yeah. And each person, each interaction gets less of you. Yeah. Which is also detrimental to the process. Well, Sam, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for for 
taking us through and going deep with us. And I'm so excited for Extraction 2. I have to watch it again. Thank you very much. Please do. And when it comes out, just keep watching it because those views are good for us with Netflix. Perfect. Perfect. I mean, I'm in. I'm in. Awesome. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. What fantastic advice from Sam. And hey, now we all know how to email well, too. Thank you, Sam, for getting in the weeds with us and to our listeners for tuning in. You can learn more about filmmaking, stunts, camera tricks, camera moves at nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on social media at No Film School, and you can like, rate, and subscribe to the No Film School podcast anywhere you can get your podcasts. And let us know what you think of this episode. Let us know what you think of Extraction 2. Let us know what you think about oneers in general. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.